We're ready to go? All right. Okay, so we are at the end of this series. I thought this series might be six or eight uh, messages. It turned out to be 20, uh, interrupted by Holy Days and other series and all of that. So it's very easy to not remember all of the content, or at least the flow of the content. So uh, as I did at the beginning when I introduced it and talked about several aspects of it, I thought I would conclude it by trying to pull it all together. So I'm not going to go into all the details. I'll try to avoid that. Uh, But I want to try to pull things together. Uh, It's based on uh, the books that we read as a congregation last year and this year. The Gathering Storm and Live Not by Lies, and then The Coddling of the American Mind and iGen. Uh, it's about a very real struggle that we find ourselves in uh, against our culture. Uh, now, this is not about the end times. I'm not claiming we are in the end times. There are people that are doing that. We're certainly closer to them than we were when we started the series, right? But that, that doesn't tell us anything, right? So... Um, I believe that the end times, as the Bible talks about them, goes through a series of ebbs and flows, this kind of pushing more and more towards it. And in that, we begin to see foreshadowing or dynamics of what will happen at the end time happening in more local context. And I think that in that sense, this is connected to the end times, but not connected as if we are, we are there. Now, I based it on this idea of the gathering storm, a, a time of testing or trial that, that may be coming upon us. And I use the analogy of the storm. Storm contains wind uh, with objects that are scattered and projected by that. Rain, you know, snow, hail, uh, maybe even lightning, uh, mud that will do damage. And together they destroy the stability of a house and the household. And so I want to talk about that metaphor. I want to talk about it in the things that I believe are gathering, the clouds that are gathering towards this storm that we as believers are going to face. First one is secularism. I've talked about that. The ancient faith, this faith that you and I hold, originally had to fight paganism, or what was called paganism. We were simply fighting the false concepts of the gods of the nations that go back to the time of Babel when not knowing the true God, they worshipped the creation rather than the creator and created idols. Those gods were the battle of Judaism and the emergence of what we call Christianity as there was a battle against who is God. That battle was, for the most part, in the Western world, conquered by uh, the Christian faith. To a lesser extent, the, the faith of Judaism. Until the modern era. In the modern era, secularism began to rise up. This idea that there's a no-God zone. There is no God. And therefore what's happening is happening by natural law. And therefore you might have a religious aspect in some part, but not in the whole. And of course for atheists, secularism is the whole game. 
the danger for believers, and particularly for American believers, is this idea that there is both a sacred and a secular. That is not a biblical concept. The biblical concept is the holy and the common. But God is in all of that. So I want to remind you, there is no no-God zone. There is no aspect of your life or my life that is without God. It may be that we don't acknowledge Him in those things, but that doesn't mean He's not there. That's why in all our ways, we are to acknowledge Him and He will guide our path. Second one is relativism. Another modern idea, the idea that there is no real truth this is really postmodern. There is no truth, and that all knowledge is based on experiential narratives and perspectives, based on language and culture and that kind of framework. But for us, there is revealed truth. Revealed truth in a people, Israel, the only culture created by God. He scattered the nations at Babel, but he formed Israel as a culture that would be a light to the nations. Out of that comes the scriptures, the revealed word of God, and out of that comes Messiah, the Savior of the world, uh, who we know as Jesus, who is understood as Yeshua in Hebrew. That's critical for us. We are not following cleverly devised fables. We're not following perspectives and ideas. We are following truth as revealed by God. Third one is humanism. Humanism is the idea that mankind can solve the problems of life and reality because we're not the source of the problem. The problem is external to us. Now, Scripture is pretty clear that sin is the problem, and that sin is in us. So we are the carriers of the problem, not the solution of the problem. Uh, it's very important to keep that in mind. Finally, well not finally, i got two more. Elitism is the idea that there are certain people who have a superior gifting or ability in such a way that they know how to run things and the regular people ought to just sit down and shut up and follow them. And there are elites in government, there are elites in business, there are elites in economics and in medicine and in education and in media. There are even elites in religion who seem to think that they will just tell everybody what to do and you are not to, to follow that. Um, the danger of elites is they seek power, and when they get power, because sin is in them as well as us, their capacity for sin becomes greater. And so the greatest evil is often done by those who think of themselves as elites. And finally, the last one is utopianism. This is the idea that we can make the world perfect. We can solve the problems. We can get rid of poverty. We can get rid of sickness. We can get rid of death. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't fight against those problems. But the idea that we can create a utopia uh, is uh, in a, incorrect and inappropriate. God is working through this present world with all of its flaws. And he will ultimately work out his purpose, and our job is not to make the world better, to repair it as we can, but to wait for God to bring the kingdom 
that kingdom that will be uh, on earth, that kingdom that will bring this to its full manifestation, and then will be replaced by a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. So those are the clouds that are forming. What they will do is follow a path. And that path is what they will disrupt as they go through uh, this culture. So what, are the, what is the pathway of the storm? I'm going to talk about four of them. I talked about them in the uh, series. One is life. God intended for us to be fruitful and multiply. He gave us that in the context of marriage. But we have decided that we are uh, in charge of life when it begins, if it begins, and when it ends. And so birth control, abortion, euthanasia, and all of that, deciding who is worthy of keeping around and who is not, is part of what they will attack. That is God's prerogative and not ours. The second is gender. God created us, male and female, for the purpose of marriage and procreation and parenting and all of those things. And gender and sexuality and marriage and procreation and parenting has been completely separated in this culture so that you can have any one of those without the others. And that is not God's intent. That is not what God wanted. He wanted those together, at least for us. Third one is race. God made us of one blood. There are no races. The nations that were scattered changed culturally and incidentally physically. There was not a physiology that made some of them superior and others inferior. The idea of race is a modern term, not an ancient or a biblical term. It's a modern term that came out of Darwinian theory that said some people had evolved further and some people hadn't and you could tell by how they looked whether they were superior or inferior. All of that is garbage. Okay? God created human beings from one couple and the changes in us are ephemeral at best and part of the sin and the cultural variability that we find ourselves. So the Bible's very aware of ethnicity and culture. It knows nothing about race. And finally, the issue of freedom and liberty. The biblical concept of liberty is that maximum liberty is found in obedience and trust of the Lord our God. There is liberty in following the commandments of God. But in our culture, liberty is to be free from any of those restraints, to seek social justice that is enforced, to curb speech and curb religion and do everything at the basis of trying to stay safe and secure and healthy. Those are very different categories. The dynamics of this storm will be a redefining of the categories of life, gender, race, and liberty. And the reason for that is that the culture has to reframe those in order to control them. The Bible has different categories and we need to teach those to our children and make sure that we know them as well. Now as that storm goes through the, the, the pathway that it's going, there are going to be two major dynamics that are going to affect us. They're the things that break this apart that do the destruction. One of those is assimilation. The temptation for us to be 
like the world or have as much of the world as we can and still be saved. That compromise pulls us into assimilation. And there are two basic types of assimilation. One is seductive. One says, oh, this is really good. And we go, oh, I want to I follow that. The other kind of assimilation is coercion. And we're seeing a lot of that now as people are being coerced into saying the same things and doing the same things. When assimilation doesn't work, the next thing to happen will be persecution. Persecution will be a rejection of us or actual overt seeking our harm. Those dynamics of the storm are important and we see them on the horizon now. We need to be aware of that. Our children need to be aware of that as, as we move forward into that. There's also storm shelters. You guys are familiar with the idea of the storm shelter if you saw The Wizard of Oz uh, where people are hiding in the basements for that. Storm shelters are places prepared to allow people to survive the storm. And when the storm is at its most intensity, that's when the shelter is tested. You don't know if the shelter works until that storm hits. If it's been well prepared, it will stand. And if it's not been well prepared, it will fall apart and expose the people to the direct impact of the storm. The storm shelters for Judaism and Christianity are the household and the congregation. These are relational structures that are needed to prepare us for the storm so that this faith is inculcated in ourselves and in our children so that we will withstand the storm in that framework. Now the problem is no household and no congregation is going to be able to withstand the pressure of the larger culture if we are mostly adapted to that culture. just makes it impossible. So we have to make sure that in our homes and in our congregation, we're actually building a resistance to this storm and not a mild accommodation to that storm. You want to remember Lot's wife. If we look back at the things that are being destroyed by God, uh, we will be unworthy of where he is calling us. Our children have to be convinced of the truth They have to be filled with the Spirit if they're going to survive. We read that passage. If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. But if we endure, and if we die, we will live and we will reign with Him. And so that needs to be clearly part of our confession. Not just, Lord, save me from my sins, but Lord, help me to endure in the midst of persecution and assimilation and the struggle of sin in myself. I also included in this, because of the iGen book, the generational concerns. There are clear differences in generations. The war generation went through rough childhoods in in the Depression. And then when World War II broke out, they rose to the challenge. They had very rough childhoods and teen years, and yet they went up against a world war, and they won it in their teens and early 20s. They gave birth to my generation, the baby boomers, who rejected our parents' world because we wanted an ideal world. We tried to create a utopia, 
and we failed. Our children, the Busters and Generation X following that, moved into more and more individualism and more and more into secularism and more and more into relativity as they moved into post-modernity. And so they were very tied into humanism and all the postmodern issues. They are much more vulnerable to the storm because they actually believe that these changes in gender and in marriage and in the economy and in all these things are actually solutions to the problems of life. So they're vulnerable to this problem. iGen, the latest one, are the most susceptible to these forces because they've been coddled the most. They have been protected, overprotected, and as a result, they place security and safety above liberty and above truth. And that makes them very susceptible to the kind of stampede that the elites are trying to bring. Not because they want to give them the promises that they're making, but because once they have control of them, they will be able to keep them under their thumb. The the elites will continue to benefit and everyone else will suffer. But they will be powerless to fight against it. So we're not to live by lies, we're to live by truth. And so now I'm going to get to my biblical text as I get uh, near the uh, end of this series. Or I get to the end of the series. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians something that I think we need to keep in mind. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Jesus is not an add-on to your life. Jesus is not something to get your get-out-of-purgatory-free card. Jesus is not some kind of, this is for the next life uh, while I struggle through this life. Jesus is for every day and every part, and we are to, in Him, live and move and have our being in, in that sense. So he says, as you have received Him as Lord, so walk in Him under Lordship. Having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed And overflowing with gratitude. Gratitude that you know the truth. Even though living it is difficult. See to it that no one takes you captive. Through philosophy. Empty deception. According to the tradition of men. And according to the elementary principles of the world. Rather than according to Christ. Don't follow philosophy. Don't follow the traditions of men in their culture. Be careful about this made-up stuff and this so-called claim of science, particularly when it's coming out of a secular base. Because the secular base says, what is, is true. What is, is truth. And the Bible says, what is, is truth mixed with sin. And there's a difference there. So he tells us we're to walk in truth established in Christ and we're to be thankful for our knowledge of God's grace. And we're not to be ruined by the world's understanding because they walk in lies of their own making 
We are to walk in the truth revealed to us by God. Now, I picked that verse because I think that that's foundational to chapter 3. And I want to go through chapter 3 in uh, Colossians because I think it sums up what I've been talking about in the, uh, in the series. What I've been doing in the series is talking about the specifics. But the general framework is here in Colossians chapter 3. So Paul says in 3, 1 to 4, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. We are living between two incredible events. The resurrection and the ascension. And the return and the kingdom establishment of the Lord. And since we have been raised with Him, we are a new creation, at least in the inner man. We should be focused on preparing for that and not trying to uh, fix this world. And so Paul's very clear that we are to be focused on what God is doing, and God is doing eternal things. We are to be minded on things above and not the things of the earth. In verse 5 he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed which amounts to idolatry. It is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also walked when you were living in them. But now you are to put away, put aside anger and wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech with your mouth. Interesting that what Paul says here is that we are to battle and put off those evils. I want you to notice something. Those evils are not external to us. They're in us. And they're in the whole world. And what the world does is it seeks to justify what they desire and what they want because they think it's natural. And they think that it is leading towards good. And they're ignorant of the fact that it is sin. And what leads towards good is the obedience of the commandments. The commandments tell us what is good and they tell us that we're not. And so that struggle is an internal struggle. And Paul says, you used to be like them. You used to be in that world. You used to function in that way. But now you're supposed to take that stuff off. Move it as far away from you as you can. That's the struggle of faith. While the world finds a way to justify living these ways, we know better. So we become foreigners and pilgrims in the world because we're living in diaspora. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self and its evil practices, and put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. 
we're supposed to be functioning in a new person. We're putting on the new self, renewed in truth, transforming our mind into the new creation and a new humanity. And that's beyond any station of life that we might have here, whether we're bond or free, whether we're Jew or Gentile. We are supposed to be striving towards that. But there's a very important part of this that we have to keep in mind. Because at this point, it's easy to move off into individualism and say, it's me. Okay. It's not me. It's we. So in verse 12, Paul says this. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Boy, I love those words. Aren't they great? Till the next part. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Wow! I'm working on myself, I'm improving myself, and then you get my way. And I have to endure that. And I have to forgive that. And I get in your way. And you have to endure that. And you have to forgive that. In other words, we're going to bump into each other. And we can't use that as an excuse to leave. We have to say, we have been called together by the Father. We are brethren. We are sisters. We are family of God. And we have to work through these things. We have to work through them in humility. We have to work through them in gentleness. And then he says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. We're not going to be unified in what we think. We're not going to be unified in our doctrine. We're not going to be unified in our practice. Human beings split over anything. The old song is very true. You say potato, I say potato. Let's call the whole thing off, right? We get one little burr in our saddle and that's split. And what the scripture says is that love, that self-sacrificing love is the glue that brings us together in unity. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So he says, I want you to do this. This is the perfect bond of unity, love for one another. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Because it's not going to rule in your relationships if it's not resonant in your heart. To which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful. Oh, I wish God had several bodies. I could pick the one I like best. We do that with churches. We do that with denominations. We're doing that all wrong. That's why it's very important that we maintain a multi-denominational body of Christ mindset in who we are because we're bigger than our households and our congregations. We belong to the whole people of God. And in that, we should be thankful. Always this idea of thankfulness because of the grace of God that has come to us.
Now, how are we going to do this? Well, he tells us, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Get the word in you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. I love this. Notice he doesn't say, uh, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing by the pastors. No. One another. And in the last two years, we've seen more of that. As various people in this congregation have stood here and admonished one another and taught one another. We're doing what the scripture says. Because as the storm comes, we need it to be not a performance of a few, but the experience of the whole. And that's really critical for the children to experience. Finally, he says... Whatever you do in word or deed, those are the behavioral things. Word and deed. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This Thanksgiving thing is a constant theme. It's a very troublesome thing. Thankfulness is not easy. But I believe there's a a key to being thankful. Being thankful is an outgrowth of gratitude. When you realize that you don't deserve any of this, that it came by grace, that you have nothing that hasn't been given to you, the gratitude of that begins to give birth to thankfulness and humility because we realize that we are shot through with sin and yet, God has loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So our words and our behavior, and I love that Jeff just finished that series on our words, uh, because those are the two key external behavioral aspects of theology. Words and deeds, not feelings. Feelings are important, but they don't lead. They're supposed to follow. So I want to go back to a passage I gave you. I don't want to end on a bummer, but I want to end on a warning. A passage I gave you at the beginning of this series. It's Luke chapter 12. I thought about doing the entire chapter and then I thought I'd wear you out. I'm supposed to be doing the uh, conclusion and not dig into this further. So, yeah. Luke 12, and we're going to pick it up at verse 49, though most of this is talking about how to be ready, Um, and I would pick it up at verse uh, 35 if I really had time, but I really don't. I want us to be able to do some Q&A. So we're going to pick it up at verse 49, because there is a danger, and this goes back to a series that I did earlier where I said a lot of people are getting the gospel wrong. They think the gospel fixes the world. The gospel calls us out of the world to live in Christ while we wait for his return. It doesn't fix the world. This world won't get fixed. It's going to be judged. As Trevor said earlier, uh, reading from the scriptures and reminding from the scriptures, the, the righteous will shine and the wicked will be punished. 
God will ultimately take care of that. So Jesus says these words, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. He's ready for it to be over too. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? No. I tell you, rather divisions. From now on, five members of a household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. And they will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. want to let that sink in. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be hot today, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but you do not analyze the present time. And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? While you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate on your way, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out of there until you paid the last cent. I want to zero in on 49 to 53. Jesus is telling us That even if we do a great job with our households, and even if we do a wonderful job in being a congregation that walks in light and in holiness and in goodness, there will be some contentions and divisions among us. Some of our children may not remain in the faith. Some of our grandchildren may not remain in the faith. Some of our members may not remain in the faith. We have a tendency to think this is easy. And if we just go through the motions, everybody will be safe. But it's really not that. And so we need to be warning one another, admonishing one another to stay in the faith. I don't mean in a judgmental way. I mean in the same way that you would yell at your kid if they were playing in the street and a car was coming down the street. You're not mad at your kid. You're desperate for them not to be hit. And so we need to cherish one another in this process so that we are not condemning one another, but drawing one another back into the Word, back into community, back into the love and peace that God wants us to have. And as it gets darker and as the storm gets crazier, there will be people who say, I can't handle this, I'm going to assimilate. Or I'm just going to avoid being persecuted. We have to admonish them with the words that we heard earlier today and that we spoke. We said we were willing to suffer so that we will endure and so that we will not deny him. Deny him with our words or with our behavior. 
that will start in the heart, but it won't be seen until it has grown into the words and the behavior. And so we want to clip it earlier. We don't want a bitter root, as the book of Hebrews says, to rise up in us and to defile us. So with Joshua, we have to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, knowing that that will not be easy and that that will be often misunderstood. But it is important that we endure through the storm as the storm comes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.